Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. For some Americans, the uh, coronavirus just got real yesterday. For some, it happened when the World Health Organization officially started using the word pandemic. For some, that moment of awareness or uh, reality set in when uh, American financial markets officially entered the bear market. For others, it was the cancellation of in-person classes. Parents across the country trying to figure out how to get to their college students and get them moved out of their dorms um, for the foreseeable future, at least to the end of the year. Uh, Ever-growing number of colleges and universities across the country uh, canceling classes, uh, in-person classes for the remainder of this academic year. Um, We also had the creation of the nation's first containment zone, complete with a perimeter secured by the National Guard around the town of New Rochelle, New York. For others, it was the announcement of the suspension of travel from many European countries, Um, to the United States for all non-U.S. residents. For others, it was the suspension of any number of concerts, conferences, parades, festivals from Coachella to South by Southwest to Democratic campaign events. Uh, For you, it might have been the public announcement on Twitter that Tom Hanks and his wife, Rita Wilson, have both been diagnosed with the coronavirus while filming in Australia. Or maybe it's the expanded number of politicians and public health officials who are now self-quarantined because of known exposure to a person who has tested positive. Um, But for many, it was the announcement yesterday that the NCAA College Basketball Championship, uh, known as March Madness, would actually happen without fans in the stands. Um, Or, subsequently, last night, the NBA suspending the season until further notice. Now, for some Americans, that's when the coronavirus became real. Because for them, um, it is these entertainment events Uh, that is pressing in upon what they consider to be normal life. So where do you fall in all of this? At what point in time did the coronavirus get real for you? Um, It's time to get real uh, with this subject matter. We're certainly up to the challenge, but it is time to come to terms with the reality that normal is about to be redefined, uh, dramatically changed for an unknown period of time. Your church is likely going to suspend in-person services at some point. Your, ch- your schools are likely going to close at some point. Your hospital is already implementing new visitor protocols. Um, if you're not aware of that, uh, important to check on that before you go to see somebody uh, you love who's in the hospital. The way you work and the work you do may well be affected. Um, but we're resilient and we're creative and we're going to get through this and we're going to do so together. And as people of faith... We are going to be the gracious, non-anxious presence in the culture. We are not people who live in fear, and we are not people who run away when there is a need arising among us. And so I'm going to continue to encourage us on this front. Uh, I am going to continue this conversation in just a moment, along with my colleague, Peter Kapsner. Um, And you guys know Peter well enough to know that my great challenge will be to have him sound non-anxious. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. 
Joining me now, Dr. Peter Kapsner. Peter, we're, we are committed to having a non-anxious presence. Can you can you muster that? Well, I, I'm still chuckling a little bit for you playing the chicken little card on me about a minute ago there. So <laughs> I was completely captivated by what you're saying. And I was going through my mind saying, when did the coronavirus become real to me? And and uh, I think some of it was when the NCAA shut itself down. So I was really pondering and thinking about how can I shine a light in the culture? And then you drop the chicken little thing on me. So <laughs> it's great. So the sky is not falling. Um, it is uh, the, not falling. It is not. The Lord falling. is still on His throne. God is still in heaven. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. But things are really, really dramatically changing. You have enough experience um, in the NBA, yeah, to help us understand just how significant it is for the National Basketball Association to completely suspend the season. Um, and then I'd also love to hear, like, what's it going to be like for the NCAA to play games with nobody in the stands? Like, so. Address the NBA issue and then the NCAA issue. Yeah, I think that was when uh, it became really real for me, or at least one of the moments yesterday. And yesterday did just seem sort of like this constant news stream. And so it was one blow after the other. And, and when the NBA decided not just to play it in front of no fans, because there was a game last night where they decided to try to do that. But when the player, Rudy Gobert from the Utah Jazz, uh, reported in as being sick and thought he was getting better, but then tested positive for the coronavirus and they just shut down the entire season. And what I know about the NBA is they're not dummies. They they are some of the most intelligent, brightest people that I've ever been around in terms of the front office staff and the personnel. And uh, they know their way around uh, different issues and have navigated so many different things um, from racial reconciliation conversations to uh, just sort of the the global intrusion into the Hong Kong and China events that the Houston Rockets did uh, at the start of the season. The general manager there did. They navigated that so well. They are, they're on the front end of uh, mathematics and analytics that have really broken down the game in a lot of different ways. So really bright people. And when really bright people like that make the decision to say, hang on a second, we better shut this whole thing down. It really got my attention because I confess when the outbreak first started in Wuhan and China that I was among some of maybe the early skeptics and thought, well, this is typical news where we're sensationalizing something that ultimately is going to burn itself out. And I've gone through a process of slow conversion to say, no, this is much more significant than I would have guessed. And then the NBA thing last night, I'm I'm not afraid. I'm just realizing that this is, wow, th- this is going to be something for quite some time. You, you said it well in your monologue at the beginning there, that we are going to be impacted. Our schools are going to be closed. Uh, our businesses are going to have to change the way we do business. And so that was the event last night. And seeing how intelligent they were, I thought, wow, yeah, no, this is going to be the real deal. All right. So um, my mom was a college professor and um, she actually uh, at the University of Arizona and basketball players were some of her favorite students. And so Mm. she she has these now these friends, right, who are in the NBA, but who were college students and played basketball. And so her question, well, her comment about this was, I don't know if people know how much squeaking there is on the court (laughs) if there's no people in the stands. It's really true. That's my mom. My mom's big concern is that people are going to be very distracted while watching these games because they're just there's so much squeaking of the shoes on the court when there's not the dull roar in the background of all of the noise that tens of thousands of people make in in the stands at a live event. And I mean, I don't know. Did you play sports? 
Yeah, in I did. I played to... both bas- basketball and baseball. And I know that squeaking in basketball, we'd have a practice, just, you know, 12 of us <laughs> high school kids. And it was it was actually annoyingly uh, squeaky at that time when the gym would just be <laughs> empty like that. Right. So um, but what I'm also thinking here is that it's different to play with nobody cheering. It's different <laughs> to because that's more like practice or scrimmage. It is. It, it's yeah. very, very the the emotional intensity of the game is completely changed when there's nobody cheering for you or against you. Yeah, it's, it's really <laughs> true. You do. Yeah, you feed on the people around you. I watched an event in uh, Europe last night as part of the Champions League, uh, League soccer with my son. And of course, in Europe, they've been shutting down uh, fans from coming to the matches there. And so it was a significant Champions League event last night between Liverpool and one of the European teams. And with nobody in the stadium. There was when somebody had scored, nothing would happen there. It was sort of you, you did feel like you were watching some sort of junior varsity scrimmage at that point. And I'm trying to figure out why the NCAA would go ahead and go forward with the tournament. Other than that, I suppose it is such an incredible revenue generator for colleges and universities that we all know are struggling financially across our country. And uh, most of that revenue is going to come from the television watching and the March Madness and the advertising and all of that. And so I don't think they will experience a drop-off in revenue without the fans, but it's going to be kind of a crazy thing to watch uh, to just see these young men playing out there with nobody around. And, and uh, it'll, it'll really, again, hit home. I know there's probably even a lot of listeners that really enjoy that might not watch the NCAA at any point in the year, but maybe get their brackets at work or do brackets with their family and follow teams they otherwise wouldn't. And and so we'll watch the event and it's going to be a different experience that will really drive this whole thing home. All right, Peter, let's take a very brief break. When we come back, let's pivot. Let's talk about what's happening on college university campuses across the country. And then um, and then also then let's be sure that we sort of prep people for the way the ways in which their church may well uh, respond even before this coming Sunday. I am talking with Peter Kapsner here on Mornings with Carmen, and we will continue our conversation in just a moment. So at least 135 colleges and universities across the country have canceled in-person classes so far over the coronavirus. This is a continually updated storyline at Forbes.com. Top line of the story here is that Yale uh, was added to the list yesterday. So of the Ivy Leagues uh, closed include Harvard, Yale, Columbia, Cornell, uh, my alma mater, which is Princeton. In California, the list of schools that's closed is is an arm's length long, as well as Washington State. Um, over on the East Coast, um, the list includes nearly uh, 55 schools across the South, another uh, really all of the largest universities across the southern portion of the United States and the Midwest are closed as well. Um, Peter, when a, so I'm I'm reading on Twitter Last night, when Vanderbilt, which is a university close to where I live, um, when Vanderbilt told its students to move out in the next few days, um, the recognition uh, started occurring to people here that there's going to be lots of students who are stranded for one reason or another. So here's a church in Nashville posting, if you know a student with an urgent housing need, please email us. And then they give their church's email address. Uh, We are finding places for them with members of our church. So this is an opportunity for the church to really be the church. Um, Talk, just talk about being a person who lives in and works uh, in the context of an academic community in the midst of all this. Yeah. And when you sent me that note about university students last night and the international ones, I know um, we have a 
a sort of a spare bedroom above our garage. And immediately, Hallie, uh, my wife was saying, let's clean that out so that we can be ready to take in some university students that might not otherwise have a place to go. Because college campuses, <clears throat> it's filled with uh, young people that um, they may be pretty far from home. And if you can't travel and if you can't go overseas, uh, especially if you're from overseas, obviously, that you're going to need a place. And so it really is an opportunity for us to be the church. But I'm not surprised to see the colleges and the universities begin to shut down. I mean, for anybody who's walked around a college campus, even for a half a day, you see just the sheer mass of people that are going in and out of the halls or you go into the cafeteria, for example, and just the openness of the salad bar. You know, I, I was in Target the other day and all of the bagels were now individually wrapped. Uh, obviously, Costco, as I'm sure you've mentioned, has stopped serving samples. But in a college campus, there is just food sitting around everywhere. And there's all sorts of opportunities for students to interact with each other, um, sitting close to one another as they're in classes together. So it's not at all surprising that they would shut it down for a bit. Um, so, uh, I am assured that colleges and universities have plans for two categories of students. One would be these international students about whom we are particularly concerned, um, who for lots of reasons don't have an alternative. Um, there's a, there are also, um, students at universities who have no place to go home to. There is, there is no home for which, uh, to which they can return. The college campus really is their home at this point. Um, and then there's a there's another category, and those are um, graduate students who are doing research that requires daily attention, um, or even in some cases attention more than uh, more than once a day. I mean, you know, the rats have to be fed, or the mice have to be, yeah. you know, whatever whatever's happening, right? And so um, everybody recognizes that we're not talking about everybody on campus. We are talking about those who can reasonably relocate. Um, for the next several months. And so, uh, well, and again, that, again, we want to be, you know, we want to we want to be people who sort of share the accurate information, but don't create panic that these, you know, these schools are thinking through this. They are. Yeah. I, you know, I, obviously at Northwestern where I teach, uh, there has been really ongoing and, and helpful communication from the people that are part of the corona response, coronavirus response team and really thinking carefully through how to navigate the situation. And I really appreciated just seeing the, the transparency and the updates of that. And even if we were, like other schools, having to go to uh, a different kind of situation temporarily, it, it will disrupt things. Um, but but it, it's amazing to me. I, fully half the classes that I teach are online classes now anyway. And so <clears throat> you can't really do a section of class without also doing a section that's online. And uh, there's all kinds of opportunities to meet up and even just stream in the professor through Google Hangouts and uh, do some virtual classrooms. I, I will always advocate that face-to-face -face classrooms are more effective for the teaching environment, but I also understand that there's so many online environments. So yeah, it goes back to what you said at the beginning, Carmen. Our lives are gonna be disrupted, but uh, again, Hallie was even saying it last night. She said, I'm trying not to read too much about everything because the news does have a capacity to kind of create some anxiety and really overly sensationalize things. And this is a very serious situation, obviously, and it, we are going to have our lives disrupted. But I want to do this carefully and thoughtfully and be the kind of person that you suggested at the beginning that we are actually anchored in a different kind of kingdom. And even should the worst <clears throat> happen in our lives, we are going to 
uh, be safe in an eternal kingdom. We already are safe in an eternal kingdom, even as we deal with the travail of this world. And so, yes, in the midst of whatever the disruption looks like, let's uh, keep shining a light of peace, knowing that, as Jesus said, there's going to be travail in this world, but take care, I've overcome the world. Mm. Amen. Um, Peter, um, maybe one, uh, maybe a couple of minutes of attention here to the response of churches. We are going to feature a conversation tomorrow with uh, Wheaton's Humanitarian Disaster Institute that's rolling out an entire um, uh, set of resources for churches in their response to coronavirus. I know that the churches, there's more than 200 churches in Houston engaged in something called HoustonResponds.org. What are you hearing um, from churches in your local community in terms of their response? Yeah, it's it's uh, interesting. I have a number of pastors that I'm friends with, <clears throat> and I think they're just trying to get their head around this too, Carmen, in terms of what to do about these things. Because, because And you sent me an article even just on the importance of touch. And so how do we respond to people where we're supposed to keep our social distance? How do we respond to people in need and in help um, when we can't even necessarily be present to them in that way? And so I do think churches are going to have to go to online streaming the most they can. I think uh, some of some sanctuaries are going to empty out a bit from that. But what does ministry look like, and uh, and can we faithfully be a part of people's lives while having to maintain social distance that are being affected by this? I don't. I don't see. <clears throat> I see that the desire is there, but I don't see a lot of great answers just yet in terms of what is the best way to approach this. I don't know if you're seeing some things in humanitarian efforts that some churches are doing that would be a helpful template moving forward, certainly for a lot of the pastors that really would want to go out and compassionately help people. Yeah, I'm sending people to, um, you know, to the Wheaton website. Wheaton uh, Wheaton is spelled like wheat with on at the end. So wheaton.edu. And then what you're looking for is just coronavirus or COVID-19. They have a whole resource page uh, there for churches posted th- through their Humanitarian Disaster Institute. Um, and in addition to that, every starting tomorrow, every Friday, they're going to be um, offering these free nationwide uh, sort of conversations between pastors, among pastors, that pastors and church leaders can actually yeah. share some best practices and um, and avail themselves of resources they may not be otherwise aware of. So I just think that right now that's my that's my go to resource. Well, and I think, too, that I've been reading some some stories from people who have been quarantined, and they said just the ability to FaceTime with other human beings, even though you don't have the touch that that's present, um, you can, when you're isolated like that, uh, it's like, you know, the, the ministry to shut-ins that, is, that has always been one of the historical ministries of the church. When you're, when you're isolated and you can't get out, your, boy, your, your attitudes and your, um, your sense of hope and everything really begins to wane in, in a substantial way. And so in whatever way possible to stay connected, even if we can't be with each other in terms of touch or in close proximity, uh, using some of the technological means to just be checking in on people pretty consistently that have been quarantined. From what I've heard from people who have been quarantined, that was a lifesaver for them in those moments. Yeah, call, text, FaceTime, all those kinds of things. Thing. Hey, Peter, yep. Peter, thanks so much. Um, hey, you're going to cover for me on Monday. Uh, well, I'm supposed to be speaking at a college chapel. We'll see if that happens. Uh, but thanks for yeah, covering indeed. for me on Monday in advance. I appreciate it. Yep, no problem, Carmen. Thanks for being there. We'll talk soon. All right. You are familiar with Ross Douthat. He is a New York Times columnist. 
um, he has he has commented consistently over time about what you might think of as the decline of the American experiment, the ways in which we hobble ourselves um, uh, and those those foundational um, values and structures that have existed in the past uh, that have de- that we have allowed to deteriorate or which we have actually actively undermined. Well, his new book, The Decadent Society, is about all of that. And Ross Douthat is going to be here next to talk with me about the decadent society. We'll be right back. This is Max Locato. Prior to Bethlehem, God gave us his messengers, his teachers, his words. But in the manger, God gave us himself. Extraordinary, don't you think? I imagine even Gabriel scratched his head at the idea of God with us. Gabriel surely was not one to question his God-given missions. When God sent, Gabriel went. And when the word got out that God was to become a human, Gabriel was no doubt enthused. He could envision the moment the Messiah in a blazing chariot, the king descending on a fiery cloud, an explosion of light from which a Messiah would emerge. What he never expected, however, was a slip of paper with a Nazarene address. God will become a baby, it read. Tell the mother to name the child Jesus and tell her not to be afraid. This is Max Lucado. All right, joining me now, New York Times columnist and best-selling author of Bad Religion, here to talk today about his new book, The Decadent Society. Ross Douthat, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks so much for having me. It's good to be here. All right. So uh, my initial question is not the one that I had thought I was going to ask just a week or so ago. Um, when we talk about decadence, to what are we referring? And then how does the coronavirus present a real and present test of of just our current state? <sighs> Yeah, it's very interesting to be out promoting a book in the midst of a uh, global pandemic. <laughs> right. Renaissance Renaissance no longer seems like the answer. We're sort of in catastrophe mode. Yeah. So basically the, the core argument of the book is that decadence means stagnation, repetition, and decay at a high level of wealth and civilizational development. And so I spend the first part of the book arguing that basically since the late 60s and early 70s, since the moon landing, which I sort of take as a as a useful peak of American accomplishment, um, we have had economic deceleration. Um, we've had a slow, slower rate of technological progress everywhere except Silicon Valley. Um, so the iPhone in your pocket is amazing, but everything else is not what we hoped for in the 1950s. And then you've had demographic decline as people have fewer and fewer children all across the developed world. Um, and, um, and that makes society older and less dynamic and less creative. And then maybe most relevant for what's happening now, we have political stalemate and sclerosis and gridlock as systems built up over centuries or decades that worked very well when they were first built. Um, start not working as well anymore. 
And so when I wrote the book, I, you know, I tried to imagine various ways that decadence could end and various things that would put, you know, put our various weaknesses to the test. Um, and there isn't a whole chapter on pandemics, but they do, they do get a mention in the book. And I think what we've watched play out in the in the West and in the U.S. over the last few weeks is what happens when you have a substantial unexpected threat um, and you have political systems that aren't really capable of dealing with it. So you have both failures of leadership at the top, but then also all kinds of bureaucratic problems as the FDA and the CDC can't agree on who should be allowed to test. Um, and you also have variations in decadence where you have countries and places that um, figure things out or act quickly. Um, you know, if you look at what South Korea has done to stop the spread of the virus, if you look at the fact that, you know, Poland with only a few cases is already closing schools and closing borders and shutting down, um, those places look a little less decadent. And frankly, the United States of America pending, <laughs> pending developments looks a bit more decadent right now, um, in its response. So if I think of decadence as um, the the level of comfort at which we arrive, where then we just are no longer, we're kind of lethargic. We're not really interested in being creative. Um, there's not a lot of demand for ingenuity because, you know, frankly, we're just pretty comfortable with the way things are. Um, and we're, we're satiated, we're satisfied, we're kind of fat and happy. Um, and And this is very disruptive. Uh, the coronavirus in particular is just very disruptive um, at many levels of this conversation. Um, and so do you see it also as an opportunity for sort of uh, a resurgence of creativity in many of these areas? Yes, although I want to be careful. You know, we, we are at a point where the crisis is likely to become dire enough that mm -hmm. Um, you want to focus on, you know, the immediate solutions mostly and not, you know, not not start leaping too quickly to, well, wouldn't, you know, won't mm -hmm. it be great if this leads to cultural renewal and so on. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the 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 optimistic argument is that something like this, this is a serious test, but it's not, you know, the plague in Stephen King's The Stand. It's not going to wipe out civilization and make us, you know, to start start over with 1% of the population. We are going to get through this. We are technologically competent enough that there will be a vaccine at some point and be a four to six month crisis that then ends and we sort of return to normal. And after that return to normal, we will have an opportunity to say, you know, well, look, this was a warning. This is like a shot across the bow, right? This shows the weaknesses of our system. It shows the reforms that we need. It shows the weaknesses of our community. Um, you know, one of the things that's going to happen here is that kids are going to be sent home from school. Older people are going to be isolated because they're most at risk. And the communities that do the best are the communities that figure out how a way to sort of, you know, combine social distancing with um, people looking in on their elderly neighbors or people helping out taking care of each other's kids. Um, and this applies to churches, too. Uh, you know, a lot of churches will close or suspend services. Um, but that is both a challenge and also an opportunity for the church community to figure out how to act as a community 
under unusual circumstances. And you see in China, right, that, you know, China, China is a tiny bit like the Roman Empire in the age of the first Christians, right? It's a big, vast, somewhat cruel and authoritarian society with a Christian minority that's often harassed and persecuted. And one of the things you have seen in China is religious groups stepping into the breach and doing things, you know, that the state isn't doing, which is also what happened in ancient Rome. You had Christians being the, you know, there were all kinds of plagues that swept through the Roman Empire and Christians were famous as the people you wanted to live near <laughs> during a plague, right? So, um, you know, yeah, there are opportunities for virtue and sainthood as well as opportunities for political reconstruction and reform. Um, but first, we have to get the infection rate down. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right, I'm talking with Ross Douthat, uh, New York Times columnist, best-selling author. We're talking about his brand new book, The Decadent Society. Uh, many of you have already suspected that I have books uh, to give away. You can text the word book to 877-933-2484 if you'd like to enter the drawing for the copies of Ross's book, The Decadent Society, that we have available here in the studio. Just text the word book to 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Ross Douthat, you can follow him on Twitter if you're a Twitter person at Douthat NYT, stands for New York Times. We are talking today about Ross's new book, The Decadent Society. Um, Ross, we've we've kind of addressed the optimists. Maybe we could address the pessimists. Um, you and I are both aware of at least one group of people and probably more across the country who are saying to themselves, um, you know what, the world is getting right now what it deserves. Um, just speak to that. Well, I mean, you don't want to completely deny the reality that at most times and places in history, when disasters and plagues and pandemics have struck, um, Serious Christians have interpreted them as, at the very least, sort of opportunities to look to scrutinize your own life, your own life and the life of your civilization and your culture. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a there's a version of that reaction that's bad and and sinful, where you're sort of saying, you know, well, you know, the that the world got what it deserved. And that's not the right reaction to have. But to have a certain spirit of repentance and, you know, to to think seriously about your own mortality and what awaits after death, I think is an entirely healthy Christian response at, at a moment like this. I mean, one of, you know, there's, I think when a society becomes decadent, there's an assumption that decadence leads inevitably to collapse, right? People say, well, if we're decadent and, you know, our organizations don't work, and as you were saying earlier, we're sort of fat and happy, we're too comfortable in our own wealth, then surely some other great power is going to come along, um, some, you know, or some, some barbarian invasion, some unexpected disaster, and bring us all down. And one of the things I say in my book, which, again, is important to keep in mind as the pandemic 
Burns is that, in fact, decadent societies can last a long time. And if you choose to think of it in terms of, you know, providential history, you could say that God gives sometimes gives those societies plenty of opportunities to reform themselves um, before their time of history stage is over. Um, so again, I think, I think, you know, one of the things I argue is that we should be, we should be glad that our decadence is sustainable precisely because it means that we can hope for reform or even renaissance without having to go through, you know, a, a civilizational collapse or a dark age or anything like that. And I still think that with what's going on. Um, but I think it's, it's very important for religious people, for Christians to think of this in terms of, you know, this is, this is sort of a sign of how decadence can end. And our decadence probably isn't going to end from this particular pandemic. So we should think of it as a kind of warning and an opportunity to renew our renew our own society, renew our civilization. And this doesn't just apply, you know, to you, you don't have to be a Christian to think this way, obviously, either. you can, you know, you can just say, look, this shows this shows all the ways in which our politics has broken down and our organizations don't work anymore and our communities are fragmented and atomized and uh, we can do better. And the time to start doing better is the day after the quarantines lift and the schools reopen and the NBA starts playing again. Mm -hmm. So, um, so Ross, uh, all of this sort of leads me to, to wonder um, when I'm, when I'm talking with next generation people in particular, um, what the what has drawn prior generations sometimes has been, you know, that, that westward pull or that final frontier or that, you know, space quest uh, for for one generation. Um, and I do think that I do have this sense that there's there's nothing big out there that there seems to be this desire to that to, all together. We're going to conquer this. Maybe this is that thing, that new great thing that we're going to all find ourselves together in, that we are then going to have a wonderful, great resurgent desire to not only conquer, but keep or prevent from happening um, again. Help us understand like discovery and conquest and the frontier and all of that energy inside of a person that right now, for, for some people, they just feel like they're just living in futility. Yeah, I mean, I the entire Jewish and Christian story starts from God, right? Which is to fill the earth and subdue it. And one of the striking things about our era is um, that we have done that. And you know, and then the the end of the Bible has another admonition, right? Which is to preach the gospel to every tribe and nation. And maybe allowing for a few Amazonian exceptions, we've done that as well. Um, so I think part of what I'm calling decadence is this sense of sort of uncertainty about where the human story goes next. Um, and I spend a fair amount of time in the book talking about space and how, you know, we had the idea that space was going to be the new frontier, that it was, you know, that it was we were going to have a moon base and Mars colonies and we would have the Star Trek future. And so the human story would just continue into space. And that may yet happen, but it hasn't happened in the way we expected. And I think that sort of contributes to the sense that you're describing, the sense of sort of 
well, there aren't any more worlds to explore and we're sort of stuck here on Earth with ourselves and we've got our little screens and we're just going to retreat deeper and deeper into them. Um, and so I think what you need in a way is both, you need both a kind of renewal of scientific and technical ambition, which might involve spaceflight, or it might involve stopping a pandemic in its tracks and using what we learn to prepare for future pandemics and, and tr better treat the diseases we have. Um, I think there's also ways in which though, for Christians, they need to become accustomed to sort of seeing mission fields not as not or not always as far off lands that haven't been explored yet, but as places in our own society, in our own communities that have sort of fallen into the most despairing kind of decadence. You know, the sort of working class community is devastated by outsourcing, um, you know, inner city neighborhoods and so on. And Again, we're going to get a sense from this viral experience of just how isolated and neglected some communities are. And I think that that shows that even if we aren't about to go into space, there's plenty of places for serious religious believers to direct zeal and missionary energy in our society today. Yeah, plenty of space right around us, right here, right now. Uh, Ross Douthat, thank you, as always, for just bringing such... Um, you bring a real uh, acuity at, to these conversations. You you slice through a lot of the rhetoric out there. Um, you help us see things that, well, sometimes we'd rather not see about ourselves. Um, so, you know, thank you for what you do every day. Um, thank you in particular today for this book, The Decadent Society. I want to remind listeners, if you're interested in entering the drawing for the copies we have available, just text the word book to 877 933 2484. Ross, thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me. God bless and stay safe. Absolutely. You too. We'll be right back. All right. I always want to hear from you. So remember, you can uh, you can text me during the show at 877-933-2484. You can always email me, Carmen at MyFaithRadio.com. Um, I just kind of love to know what's going on in your community, how you're responding, um, what your church's response is, what you'd like to have us talk about um, going forward in terms of uh, the headline news and the conversations of the day. Um, obviously, I want to be responsive to what's happening in the world, but I also want to be responsive to your sense of, wow, these are the things I'd like to um, I'd like to be encouraged on or know more about. Um, so thank you again for listening. Thank you for being an ambassador of the program. You can always share uh, the podcast later in the day. You just go to MyFaithRadio.com and you either click on the Mornings with Carmen page or you click on the podcast uh, uh, little header and um, and you can get today's show or a prior show and you can share that link, link with someone you think would uh, enjoy that or benefit from it. Um, something to which we're specifically speaking during an episode that you think, you think to yourself, hey, um, I've got a friend or a colleague or a neighbor or a person at church who will really benefit from that today. Um, just be a be an ambassador of the show in that way. Hey, know that I am praying for you. Please continue to pray for us. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.